Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 25th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Writers, Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. How are you guys doing? Good. Good? It's been raining nonstop over at um, on my coast, and I hate it. <laughs> it's actually been a little chilly here in L.A. Oh, all's coming <laughs> yeah um let, let's get into the news because we got a, a bunch of it as we do every tuesday since we take uh, monday off for the water cooler um and let's start this off with guardians of the galaxy volume three uh we had recently heard that production had been put on hold that they were going to be reworking it which made many people think that james gunn's script was going to be basically out and they were going to completely revamp this third film but uh, new news is that uh, we we might be getting his script after all. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Sean Gunn, who is James Gunn's brother and is also um, in the series, uh, as he's one of the Ravagers, and he also does the the motion capture work for Rocket Raccoon. Um, he did an interview with a, uh, a, a paper, and he confirmed, at least you know, as far as he knows, that Disney and Marvel are indeed going to use James Gunn's script whenever Guardians of the Galaxy 3 happens. Um, you know, there's still no word on when that's happening. And last we heard from Dave Bautista, it's it's pretty much on hold indefinitely. So at, the, yeah. at this time, we don't know when it's going to happen. But when it does happen, they are going to still use James Gunn's script, which he turned in just a little bit before he got fired. Do, do you think this is like a little disingenuous of Disney? Because, you know... They deemed uh, James Gunn, uh, his past, too offensive to keep him employed as director, but they're willing to, you know, use his script on the next movie? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think the whole situation is uh, a bit ridiculous, but I I also think that there's probably like a contractual thing that, uh, I don't know, maybe they couldn't get out of the contract for the script. I really don't know, but... I I mean, you know, I don't want to get into this whole thing again because I feel like as we talked to death, but... This, this whole thing is a mess, and it really should have never happened. 
Yeah, I just, I just wonder what kind of director is going to want to come in and direct James Gunn's script because I feel like so much of that movie was, you know, the direction, the feeling, the tone, the comedy. Everything was just so much him. And especially going off a of script, if you weren't uh, completely going from scratch and, you know, doing your own thing, you know, it's going to feel a little, I don't know. And I'm just uh, very skeptical. HD, do you have any thoughts? What I wonder is, since Disney made a whole big show out of firing James Gunn and didn't want his name associated with the brand, are they going to credit him in the movie since it is his script? Well, well you know, I wonder if that's going to like have some implications or whatever <laughs> later on. I don't know. Who knows? Well, they are a Writers Guild signatory, so uh, unless they drastically change the script, I, I think I, I forget the percentage of what the like story beats and stuff is, but it has to be dramatically changed. Uh, he would not, there's no way to get his name off that. And even if they dramatically change it, he would still get a story by credit, uh, unless they completely threw it out and did something, you know, completely different. So, um, yeah, it it is weird. It's very strange. Um, but let's move on to, uh, Michael Moore's Fahrenheit 11, nine, which hit the, theaters this weekend and tons of people went and saw it no they didn't uh nobody saw it <laughs> hd tell us about it so uh fahrenheit 11 9 which is sort of his thematic sequel to fahrenheit 9 11 the bush era uh, anti-iraq war documentary that made waves and went on to become michael moore's best-selling documentary ever and and the best-selling documentary ever um Fahrenheit 11.9 didn't do quite so well. It opened only $3 million uh, in 1,719 theaters, which is actually a very wide release for documentaries. Very few documentaries get that kind of wide release. And um, while Fahrenheit 11.9's opening numbers are actually pretty good for a documentary, it's disappointing uh, for in terms of Michael Moore's whole catalog and has been sort of the another indicator of his kind of downward uh, influence at the box office. Yeah, I mean, three million. I mean, honestly, documentaries don't make that much at the box office. If if this movie were only to make three million, it would still be in the top sixty documentaries of all time. Um, mm-hmm. But this is a far drop from his past efforts, um, especially in this world where it seems like at least everybody in my bubble is so up in arms at the current administration. And what's going on? Why, why do you think uh, people did not go to this one? So the earlier reviews for this movie uh, were kind of mixed, but mostly positive, saying that it was a really powerful film, but a little all over the place. It dealt with a series of issues and not just Trump, as it was purported to initially a, a target in the beginning. And um, I think that was partly the reason. But a lot of other critics have said that perhaps it's because we're just tired of Trump. Um, and we we see him, you know, twenty four seven on our TV screens and every every day. And people don't want to revisit his rise and his current sort of uh, administration because we are already so um, inundated with everything Trump wise. And it's also kind of um, Michael Moore's falling uh, influence as well. He has been known as sort of a mainstream muckraker and his films like Fahrenheit 9-11, Bowling for Columbine, uh, Sicko used to start these dialogues around uh, important industries like uh, the Iraq war or the, the health industry. And yet now, um, while he's still like maintained that um, status as someone who's kind of um, 
uh, prophetic in a way in terms of just like these larger trends. He doesn't have quite the influence anymore. People maybe have just kind of grown tired of his shtick. Um, And perhaps a lot of his audience have kind of aged out of wanting to really uh, seek out a lot of his his really in your face films. Or yeah, or even go to the movie theater. I mean, I'm a mm-hmm. Michael Moore fan, but I I kind of like his the films that you mentioned, Bowling for Columbine and Sicko, more than like the Fahrenheit 9/11s. I I'm not even that excited to see this, but it is kind of disappointed because I feel like it's just another thing that the uh, you know Make America Great Again folks are going to use to be like, look, no one saw this movie. It's just you know the liberal media that is upset over Trump. It's you know there's really America loves Trump. Yeah, well, no one saw Dinesh D'Souza's movie either, so. (laughs) Yeah, no, good point. Good point. Uh, Let's move on to Making a Murderer. Uh, Part two of that series is is, is set to come out on Netflix. Chris, what do we know? Uh, Yeah, so Making a Murderer came out in 2015. It was a very big... Uh, it was it was like the definition of a water cooler show. We don't really have water cooler shows anymore, but I, it felt like this show was definitely that, where everyone was just talking about it. It was this true crime documentary, and it delved into the story of Stephen Avery, and it made it look like you know uh, he was an innocent man being framed by a, a uh, justice system gone wild, and it made a big impact. Um, and you know, ever since it's aired, there's been buzz about a follow-up and now there actually is a follow-up happening and it's coming very soon. It will, uh, drop onto Netflix October 19th, which is less than a month from now. And it's going to be 10 new episodes that delve into, um, the story after the last one ended where, you know, he ended up convicted. And so this is about what happened after that. So, uh, yeah, it's coming a lot sooner than I think anyone expected it to come. Yeah. I mean, this series kind of like I think launched this whole like true crime uh you know uh everybody being obsessed with true crime stuff although I think serial came out before right I yeah serial was first yeah. and you know obviously yeah. true crime as a genre has been around for a yeah, while yeah. but but you're right like, but the this craze is the current craze yeah. of it um and especially uh, on especially on Netflix because they've made like several true crime things since this yeah but in, in that first uh, docu or that first docu series is so great because it has so many twists and turns, and they filmed it over like the course of almost like ten years or something like that. Uh, this one, you know, they only have a few years, and from what I can tell from you know just the news reporting, it doesn't seem like there has been that many twists and turns to warrant. Uh, did you say ten episodes? Yeah, there's ten. What do you guys think? Do you think there's enough here that has happened in the wake of this series that, like, that it's going to be like must see TV like the first one? Uh, I mean, personally speaking, I don't know, and I've kind of like cooled on it a little. Like when it first aired, the first season, I was blown away by it. But since then, you know, I've learned that the filmmakers left a lot of stuff out. And I mean, documentary filmmakers do that all the time, but there's like a, a wealth of information they deliberately didn't include. And it, it makes the story a little less sketchy. So I'm a little less hyped up for the second one. I have to admit. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to delve into that in, in series uh, season two. Uh, are you, um, HT, are you at, at all excited for part two of this, of the show? So I'm one of the only people I think who hasn't seen Making a Murder. I completely got left behind in the um, true crime zeitgeist. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. Ten episodes seems like a lot for the short amount of time that they've made it. And I wonder if true crime is 
still quite as potent. It might feel like similar to how Serial Season 2, Part 2 was um, uh, greeted because yeah. Serial was such a big phenomenon and then people just totally dropped Serial Season 2. Yeah, I didn't hear anybody talking about Serial Season 2. Although Season 3 of Serial, people are saying good things about. So, uh, yeah, you never know. Um, but let's move on to Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald which is a mouthful of a title, which I hate saying every single time. Um, they, they are bringing back a uh, character from the Harry Potter series. It's kind of a surprise. It was revealed today. HT, you were kind of shook up when you, when you, when you realized this. Uh, tell us about it. Yeah, so um, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald uh, dropped a new trailer today, and in it, it revealed the the identity of Claudia Kim's character, who is actually a familiar face from the Harry Potter franchise, but in a way that we've never seen her before. So um, in this trailer, you see a scene in which Claudia Kim's character uh, transforms into a snake, and you hear uh, Ezra Miller's character say, Nagini. And for those who don't know, Nagini is the pet snake of Voldemort from the original Harry Potter series. Uh, no one knew until now that she was previously human, but uh, this is the big reveal. And Claudia Kim has been uh, described to be a maledictus, which is a person whose blood was uh, cursed to transform into a beast. And this is a, a curse with a time bomb, essentially. She can transform by will, it seems, but uh, after a while, she will be unable to transform back into a human and is cursed to remain as a beast forever. So this is um, a choice that has stirred up some controversy um, online, mostly because uh, it kind of dampens the this big moment of triumph in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, in which uh, Nagini is killed by Neville Longbottom. I hope I didn't spoil it for anyone. This movie's been out for like... <laughs> 10 years now yeah. um, and because she is a horcrux I'm going to go into Harry Potter lore for a little bit uh, which is one of the um, parts of Voldemort's soul that he puts into various objects into order to maintain a semblance of immortality so um, she's killed and it's this big triumphant moment but now knowing that she was originally human and a sympathetic human at that who can't really control her powers and uh, is kind of waiting until she basically gets all the humanity sapped out of her really just made dampens this whole moment and um, adds layers to it, but maybe not layers that we want. Uh, another problem is that this is uh, played by Claudia Kim, who is one and one of the few uh, people of color in this franchise, which has been criticized for its lack of diversity before. And it basically re re reinterprets this character um or reintroduces this character as, you know, one who is doomed to become enslaved by a villain who is also a thinly veiled Nazi metaphor and become <laughs> a little object later. So it's like um, there's a slew of uh, issues with this uh, with this yeah. revelation that people have taken with it. But apparently this is something JK has been interested in doing for a while now. I think she's been mm -hmm. responding to fans. Uh, I mean, do you think like they could take this series, this Fantastic Beast series and make, you know, Sure, she's sympathetic right now, but, you know, we don't know what direction that character is going to take. And mm -hmm. if eventually she gets to the point that, like, you know, it doesn't seem like she's just, uh, you know, as sympathetic, that, that like, it, it will pay off in that Neville Longbottom, uh, you know, <laughs> kill. 
I mean, I don't mind creating a character like this who is basically doomed for tragedy. I think it's a really interesting story to explore. I just think that it, by basically retconning it, it you, you see like the last part of her her life and it's it's given no depth in that part in the Harry Potter movies and the Harry Potter books because she's not really a character in those books. And so it's just kind of, it's one of those those retcons that, you know, it feels it falls flat because of that, you know. You know what I mean? It's like uh, because yeah. you don't you don't get you don't get offered that depth in later movies, or I guess the earlier movies, the later part of her years. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the same thing as Anakin Skywalker in the Star <laughs> Wars prequels, which didn't turn out well. So I don't I don't have an argument here. <laughs> Let's move on to a series of stories which are were all a uh, bunch of bad ideas. Let's start out first with uh, the Wild Bunch remake, which it turns out is going to be directed by Mel Gibson. Chris, tell us about it. Uh, yeah, so the Wild Bunch is a, a famous uh, Western from Sam Peckinpah. It's famous for its ultra-violence and its style. And now it's getting a remake from Mel Gibson. And uh, so on one level, this makes sense because Mel Gibson is very good at uh, movies with excessive violence. But on the other hand, it's just another sign that, you know, all of Mel Gibson's past transgressions have just been forgotten by Hollywood. I mean, this is a major movie. It's Warner Brothers hiring him to, to helm their big remake. And like, I, like, I don't want to get a whole thing here. And, yeah. you know, I actually think, I honestly think Mel Gibson actually is a good director, but I also feel like, he he shouldn't be making movies anymore. Like he had like there was like very little downtime between his his scandals and his big comeback. I mean, he got it, nominated it, for like an Oscar and stuff. You know? Yeah, and I should say this: like he's one of those people, and this is just my interpretation. You can tell me if you agree or disagree. That it, like some people make mistakes and they come out and apologize, and it, it, you can tell that they have reevaluated and they are a changed person. I've never gotten the sense that Mel Gibson is anything different than what he was. Does... Yeah, no, I agree. I've never really seen a, a sincere apology from, I mean, you know, I've heard stuff about, you know, his actions being blamed on his, you know, drinking and stuff like that, but that's not really, you know, even when you're an alcoholic, you're supposed to like apologize. It's one of the steps and I've never really seen him do that. So that sort of like sours me on him. No, me as well. Uh, let's move on to another bad idea, and that is that the girl in the spider's web has a new subtitle, a new dragon tattoo story. This is all kind of all kinds of bad for a, a variety of different reasons. Uh, HD, tell us about it. Yeah. So speaking of mouthful titles, uh, the um, girl, the dragon, uh, the girl in the spider's <laughs> web, uh, is now called the girl in the spider's web. A new dragon tattoo story, which makes sound makes it sound like it's destined for the bargain bins of whatever DVD stores you have in your local in your <laughs> local stores now. But um, yeah, this is something that Sony has been pushing in its most recent posters. Uh, it hasn't appeared in earlier posters or trailers, and um, it seems it's tying the um, the sequel back to the A Girl with a Dragon Tattoo movie that was first released in 2011, directed by David Fincher, um, and is supposedly supposed to help with the public who probably weren't aware that this was a Dragon Tattoo sequel, um, but maybe it wouldn't help them in the first <laughs> place because Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was actually not a huge box office hit, though it might have had a lot of acclaim and be really beloved in film circles. So it seems just redundant in general. 
Yeah, I will say this, though. If judging by the trailers and stuff, like, it, you would have no indication that this is a sequel to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And uh, so much so that even when we posted this story with, uh, you know, a WTF headline, uh, you know, one of our readers, uh, Jeff V, responded, I was so I was excited for this film and had no clue it was a sequel. Is the first one is the first one worth watching? And I think he's very sincere in this question. Like, it's not a joke. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, I do think there's a point here for Sony to try to, you know, let people know that this is, you know, in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo uh, franchise because obviously, you know, people read those books. But I guess those pe- people that read the books would know that this is part of the franchise, right? I, I guess you, you make a good point, HD. The first film didn't do that well at the box office. So what help does this do to to people? But And at the same time, to me, I just find it so weird because – you know, Solo, a Star Wars story, was all the talk of the town that, like, it doing uh, very badly at the box office. And, uh, you know, they're basically giving Spider's Web a a new Dragon Tattoo story subtitle, which sounds so much like that. Uh, <laughs> Chris, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's a terribly clunky title. I mean, I don't think anyone's honestly going to use that title. Like, no one's going to go to the box office... And be like, one ticket to the girl in the spider's web, a new dragon tattoo story, please, because people don't do that. But I, I, this whole thing, I don't know. I, I, I really liked the David Fincher dragon tattoo, even though it's technically a remake. And I, I wish he had been given the chance to direct the other two films because he yeah. wanted to, and they just never got around to it. So, or or, I, or I, even have him produce it with having the same like you know cast and stuff. But this, is... yeah, it's just it's just weird. Everything about this looks weird to me. I mean, I like Claire Foy, but she looks wrong for the part, and it just looks like an action movie, which the first one wasn't. So I, I really don't know what they're going for here. Yeah. I, I, I just don't know why, if they were going to go for this huge title, why not just call it the girl with the dragon tattoo in the spider's web? <laughs> That's even worse. Well, the funny thing is the Stieg Larsson novels were actually called the Millennium Trilogy, which is much cleaner, but then again, maybe more confusing <laughs> to other non-audiences as well. Or it, it should be the girl with the dragon tat two, the number two. Oh, oh. Oh. <laughs> the girl, the dragon tattoo, fast, too furious. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chris, you got to Photoshop a uh, poster of this. I, I need to see it. <laughs> All right, I'll get on it. Okay, let's move on to our last of our series of bad ideas, and that is Apple streaming service. The more we hear about it, the more it sounds uh, like something I don't want in my life, as much as I am an Apple fanatic. Uh, Chris, tell us about it. Um, yeah, so Tim Cook and the folks at Apple are working hard to make sure the Apple streaming service is as family-friendly and G-rated as possible. Uh, so much so that one of their first shows that they were going to launch called Vital Signs, which is based on the, the life of Dr. Dre, they basically have pulled the plug on it because the first episode, according to Tim Cook, was too violent. It had too much drug use in it, and they just didn't want to air it. And uh, they've gone so far as to just literally send notes to people um like you know m night Shyamalan's making a thriller for them and they gave him notes saying you know please don't include anything like religious in your your thriller you know no no signs of crucifixes or anything like that uh they fired the the showrunner on the new amazing stories because they thought his direction was too dark 
uh, you know, basically they're just taking all these steps to make sure everything they offer is as, you know, for lack of a little better word, bland as possible, as watered down as possible, which is just very uh, disheartening. Yes, someone involved was referring to it as an ex- comparing it to an expensive NBC, which just sounds like the worst possible thing. <laughs> because I I feel like we're in this new era of television where the premium cable networks have all this awesome programming uh, that kind of push the boundaries. We have you know the streaming service pushing the boundaries, and that that's what everybody I think is excited about. Uh, HT, are you um? Would you be interested in watching an expensive NBC? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll be the first devil's advocate here and say that you don't need sex or cursing to have fun. (laughs) Well, I think that there is a possibility for good quality content and good quality TV shows or movies to be made without... You know all the R-rated stuff. Uh, I don't know why they're making Apple is making it their brand. I think it's a bit odd, um, and also the comparison to NBC is a little odd as well. Um, I wonder if they're just trying to be like the anti-HBO, and possibly this isn't for us either. I think that maybe they're appealing to families who have young kids who are trying to find a service where uh, they don't have to monitor all the time. So that's possible that this could be their demographic that they're targeting. But like, I don't know, all the Apple products have parental monitoring and that kind of stuff built into them. Like, why not just make the gambit of everything and be able to use their devices in the way that they built them to be used so that like, you know, young children won't see the, you know, more extreme content and adults can, you know, not have to watch, uh, you know, a small selection of family friendly content. Uh, parental controls don't always work. And <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Being devil's advocate is hard, Peter. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested to see what this is because we still don't know how people are even going to watch the content on Apple's TV service. Is it going to be streaming on Apple TV? Is it going to be on uh, the web? Like, how are people going to even access this? We don't even know. So uh, there's a lot of questions to be answered here. And I I, I just wish, you know, I I am a self-proclaimed Apple fanatic. I love their devices. You know, I I am all in. I have an Apple Watch my my hand i have or my rest rather i have an i'm on i'm broadcasting right now from a macbook i have an iphone right next to me you know i i have an apple tv that's why i watch 99 percent of the stuff i watch on i don't know this just seems so disappointing to me because this is a company that i i really think gets it right most of the time and this just seems like a bad idea from start to finish but i hope they prove me wrong um you know, Steve Jobs used to have this quote, I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the, that basically Apple gives people what they want and not what they think they – or what they need and not what they think they want. So so maybe Apple is making the the TV uh, service that we need, but we, we don't have any idea that we want it. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's move on to our last final story, and this is the Bumblebee trailer, which hit uh, the web uh, – yesterday i think yeah yesterday and um we wanted to give our reactions on this so you can go to slash and check out the bumblebee trailer i'll have a link in the show notes uh but i'll start this off and say guys i know that paramount is really good 
at editing awesome trailers of bad Transformers movies, but this looks fantastic. Like, this looks better than – and I'll, I'll say some of the Michael Bay Transformer movie trailers are some of the best trailers of all time, and I think this looks better than those. Like, it really looks like it has some heart to it. It it, it brings some of the Transformers in the way I knew them from the 80s in a more blocky uh, style. I, I'm excited to see that. I'm, it's, the action looks so good. HT, what do, what do you think of this trailer? I am really uh, excited about this trailer. So I remember in the first reaction to the first Bumblebee trailer, I compared it to having an Amblin s kind of atmosphere. And I definitely get that with this new trailer. They seem to have uh, heard the reactions from that that last one and doubled down on it, which I'm really excited for. Um, yeah, it, it put a smile on my face. I think Haley Seinfeld is great. I get a real uh, sort of almost Iron Giant type of um, relationship between her and Bumblebee. And I was not a fan of the Transformers in growing up, uh, at least not the animated series, a little before my time. But this made me um, realize why people were so fond of them. It gave me that nostalgic feeling without really being nostalgic for a specific thing. So I liked it. Chris, I'm afraid to ask, what did you think of the Bumblebee trailer? Uh, I'm so- <laughs> I, I, I hate to do this. I really, I really genuinely hate to do this, but it, uh, it is a no from me. Um, you know, I, I've actually liked all the trailers up until this one. I thought they were working, and it looked like the first Transformers movie I actually wanted to see. And then this one, man, I don't know. I just... I. I just want to see one of these movies where stuff isn't like constantly exploding. Like it's just exhausting. Like this, this trailer, it starts off good. It starts off. Well, it starts off basically like the iron giant and it just turns into, you know, John Cena, you know, running around <laughs> and stuff blowing up. And I just instantly tune out. I was like, I don't care. I don't care anymore. Like, <laughs> I will say I could see like from what I saw in this trailer, I bet you that the fun finale will be just a giant explosive, uh, you know, punch out. But other than that, I liked it. Continue, Tris. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, that, that's you know, again, I get it. You know, they have to make these movies entertaining. But I, I wanted the whole movie to literally just be, I wanted to basically be like ET, where Bumblebee is the only alien creature, quote unquote, in the film, and you know, he bonds with. Haley Steinfeld, and that's it. Like they didn't and, like, need the government's to... out to get him. There isn't yeah, other like, uh, Decepticons. Yeah they, mm-hmm. yeah, they didn't need friggin' Boombox Man or whatever their names are. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like they just like it could have would have been fine if like John Cena was the only bad guy. You know, like Peter Coyote in ET, where he's trying to catch Bumblebee, and then he realizes Bumblebee isn't so bad. You know, just do that. I don't need all the other robots, but that's me. You can send your hate mail to C Evangelista four thirteen. No, uh, I, I don't know. I, I fear that you are probably right. I fear that the movie isn't going to be good. I know uh, that the script wasn't great, uh, or I had heard it wasn't great. Um, I, I don't know. It, it just, I'm. I, I guess I'm probably getting my hopes up here. I, I, I like Michael Bay. And uh, I kind of like him as a cartoon character, and I admire how insane and uh, ridiculous he is with his films. And I feel like he he takes it a few steps too far, and, like, it's almost 
hard to watch some action scenes these days from Michael Bay because they're just so um I'm trying to think of the word, but like just all over the place. Yeah, overstimulating all over the place. Uh I mean if you look at some of the stuff that like some of the best parts of those Transformers movies and the action are like these well animatic out uh sequences like you know the bumblebee transforming around you know uh shia labeouf's character sam witwicky and and stuff like that um like i feel like someone like travis knight might not uh you know be all as all over the place as michael bay i think he might have stuck more to the plan and that excites me because seeing like even these shots of of uh, Haley Steinfeld's character running away while all the actions kind of taking place around her uh, looks like fun to me. Like it, like it doesn't look like a bad. I, I, I know what you're saying, Chris, because you're thinking of all the bad action from the Transformers f- films. But I feel like this could actually be good, right? No. I think I see. I think I agree with you, Peter. I think the action did look cleaner in this trailer yeah. than anything we've seen in Transformers movies. And while I do, uh, I don't anticipate. I don't. I'm nervous about um, a big fight out at the end. That's just CGI mess. Um, I hope that the rest of the movie won't give in to that. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I. I hope so. I'm hopeful. Um, Chris, are you going to see this in the theater, regardless of your uh, your cynicism? I've- no, I probably will not, but I I will watch it eventually, maybe on Blu-ray. And if it's good, I'll be the first to admit I was wrong. But as of now, I'm uh, uh I'm on the fence. You're out. You're out. That's what you're saying. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> okay. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily HT. Where can we find more of your work online? You can find me every day at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at htranbui. Chris, where can people find you, the angry Transformers fans, to uh, send you <laughs> hate mail and tweets? Yes, you can find me at SlashFilm.com, and you can send your hate tweets to me at Evangelista 413 You can find me at SlashFilm.com on all social media. You can find all the stories we talked about today on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. Uh, you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Okay, Chris. So what would it take to get you excited in a Transformers movie? Like, would it have to be like David Fincher is directing a Transformers movie? (laughs) I mean, maybe. (laughs) No, I I think it would have to be like I was saying. It would have to literally be basically a remake of E.T. where there's nothing, there's no big action sequences. It's just a a really simple personal story. And I don't think they will ever make that. So the answer is nothing. It will never happen. (laughs) Nothing? Not even like Quentin Tarantino doing a Transformers movie? And and don't don't say he would never do it. He's doing a Star Trek movie. No, no, no. I mean, he he probably would do it, but I don't, I just, it's hard for me to, I, I don't care about cars that turn into robots. Like, I just don't care. I don't care. Hey, there's, there's also planes that turn into robots. All right. Well, then, now that you put it that way, I guess I'm sold. 
Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.